I should say, before we get started on this passage, there is rough language ahead. If there are children with you in the car or in the room, you might want to save this episode for another time. I told you the language is going to coarsen. <laughs> sure enough. violating my own rules. This is going to be a long episode about a fairly long passage from Inferno, Canto 18, lines 40 through 66. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we usually slow walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy. But in this episode, I couldn't break the passage. So there's a lot ahead. I apologize for that. I have gone back several times, as you know, in this podcast and re-recorded episodes because they got too long. This time, I just have to take this passage as a whole. And that may say something about the way Dante's art is changing. We are in the eighth circle of hell. We are in the first evil pouch of the circles of fraud, the smaller inner rings of fraud. We have just been walking along beside some sinners in a ditch, and now we're actually about to hear from one of them. So here we go, horn demons and all, Canto 18, lines 40 through 66 of Inferno. As I was going along, my eyes happened upon one of the sinners, and all at once I said, I certainly haven't been fasting for the sight of that guy. So I halted my footsteps to figure out his features, and my gentle guide stopped with me and even let me back up a bit. That horse-whipped one believed he could hide from me by lowering his face. Little good it did, because I said, you! With your eyes on the ground, assuming your features haven't been falsified in some way, your Venedico, Caccia Nemico, how come you're held down in this rank braze? And he to me, I don't want to say anything, but your plain speech forces me to do so, because it forces me to remember the old lost world. I was the guy who made Gisolabella submit to the will of the Marquis, no matter how the filthy story gets told. And I'm not the only Bolognese wailing here. This place is crammed so full of us that not so many tongues have learned how to say Sipa between Savena and Reno. And if you need any confirmation or truthfulness from all of this, just remember our money-grubbing ways. As he was speaking, a demon struck him with his whip and said, Get on, pimp! There's no twat for you to mint into coin here! That's the passage. This poor guy down here being horsewhipped by these demons as he walks along. Well, maybe not so poor. He's actually a rather despicable character. We'll talk about what he did in a minute and how the passage unfolds historically. It's a little tight, but let's just start at the top and take it as it comes. As I was going along, the passage begins, my eyes happened upon one of the sinners, and all at once I said, I certainly haven't been fasting for the sight of that guy. 
while we call these things the evil pouches, we're going to discover soon enough that this is actually a rather large landscape. Soon enough on down the line, you're going to have to remember junior high geometry and the circumference and diameters of circles and pi r squared. And you're going to discover that the distances between the ditches and what they look like and between the circles and etc. are perhaps larger than you might think. So while we call this place the evil pouch, it's important to remember that it's actually a fairly large ditch. Think, for example, that if near you, your local government or your national government were building an interstate or an autoroute or a big major highway. Think about how that ditch would look that they're digging that the highway is going to be in. That is what you should picture for each of these ditches of the Malabolgia. You should picture large expanses, pretty big enough that in this case, as you remember, sinners can pass up and down, one going one way and one going the other way. If John Nornberg's thesis is right, that is, the ones on the pilgrim's side of the ditch have to take bigger steps, because again, think about a big highway dig and how big that ditch would be. They have to take bigger steps to keep up. Then Dante is looking over their heads and at the people on the other side who are coming his way, if Nornberg is right. This is not the way the passage is traditionally seen. It's traditionally seen that those coming toward him are closest to him because that's how we start down. Maybe. I like Nornberg's point for some reasons, but I'm going to tell you that I've thought a lot about it in the last 24 hours, and I'm going to quibble with it, but we're going to say that clear to the end of the podcast. So, Big ditch, looking over. I haven't been fasting for the sight of that guy, so I halted my steps to figure out his features. Let's talk about the halting. That passage is strange. It's very rare. I halted my steps to figure out his features. This is going to become more and more of a problem in comedy because Virgil's going to get more and more of a rush as we go forward and say, hey, 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 we got a lot of territory to cover. But right now, there seems to be a loosening of the pace. I halted my steps. How many times has that actually happened other than to have a conversation, of course, with, let's say, uh, Pierre de la Vigne in The Wood of the Suicides? Obviously, our pilgrim had to stop to talk to the tree that used to be this courtly figure. But here, we actually have a conscious halting and then, even rarer, a backing up. My general guide stopped with me and even let me back up a bit. Very rare moment in comedy. Why is it here? What should we make of this? Is this to heighten the conversation to come? In other words, by pointing out that I not only stopped, but I backed up a little bit to catch the features? Are we heightening the conversation? Is this so that while the figure is walking toward our pilgrim, he himself is backing up to get more and more of a view of him. After all, if he's coming toward me, I've got to take steps backwards in order to keep looking at his face. Dante is more worried about the verisimilitude, the truth-telling of this fictional state and trying to make it look more realistic. Or, of course, you can always get meta with this and you can always say there's something slightly fraudulent about the forward motion being stopped and backed up. I don't actually buy that meta argument here. You know I love meta arguments. But 
I don't actually buy it here. I think it more has to do with the attempt for verisimilitude. That is, if some guy's walking toward me, in order to keep looking at his face, I'm going to have to back up a little bit to get a clear vision of him. Okay, passing on in the passage. That horsewhip one believed he could hide from me by lowering his face. This is a bit of a change. We have come over a bump here and we've come over a bump in which the damned do not want to be recognized remember chaco francesca ferranata pierre de la vena brunetta latini how much did they want to talk my gosh you can shut those guys up they wanted to carry on well chaco you kind of had to force the old pig to talk a bit when he was in the gluttons but you know they still were very discursive and here it seems that now we've come over a bump and the damned don't want to talk they're trying this guy's trying to lower his face he's trying not to look at the pilgrim he doesn't want to be recognized he doesn't seem shocked which is a little odd that a living person and Virgil are walking along the rim of this bank but nonetheless he's trying to hide himself from what clearly is someone out for a stroll to have a good look at the universe and this guy doesn't want to be seen the passage goes on, little good it did, because I said, you with your eyes on the ground, assuming your features haven't been falsified in some way, your Venedico Caccia Nemico. Let's talk about this figure, Venedico. He's an important political figure in Bologna in his day, in the late 1200s. He was actually the podesta, we might say now in modern terms, the mayor of several cities, or the head of the city council of several cities, a very influential figure. There is something curious here that we should say, just to catch the full depth of the characterization going on here. The poem, remember, is set in the year 1300. We have all kinds of clues for why it's set in the year 1300, why that's important to the year 1300, why the Jubilee year is 1300, the whole turning of the century. We have all kinds of clues that this is the new century, especially since New Year's was March 25th. This is the new century, the new Easter. Remember, this is Easter weekend, after all, that this thing is happening in 1300. Problem is, Venedico died in 1302, maybe 1303, probably 1302 with the new calendars that have since come in since Dante's day. So now we would say 1302. Did Dante not know? There are several answers we can give to this, and let me give them, and I'm not going to come down anywhere on this. I'm just going to give you several ways you can think about this. Okay, so Dante encounters a figure in hell who cannot be dead when Inferno is being set. One, Dante didn't know that Venedico wasn't dead, or he didn't know the exact date of his death, and, you know, writing now forward, let's say 13, 12, 10, 9, you know, several years in advance, and communication lines being as poor as they are in the Middle Ages, Dante has no idea when Venedico actually dies. He just assumes he's dead. It's 1300. And he puts him down here. You can also say Dante did know that Venedico is dead. And Dante is being a little tongue-in-cheek here. That is a little fraudulent. That is, in the circles of fraud, Dante himself is, as we've talked endlessly, being a little fraudulent about writing itself and saying, hey, you know what? I can write what I want to write because writing is making it up, because writing is creating the fraud illusion of truth, because, <laughs> because comedy is creating the fraud illusion of truth. That, to me, doesn't seem right in this passage because the passage seems 
seems to plain song and direct for that kind of funky meta interpretation. I'm back to that again, not wanting it to be meta. Or there's a third solution here, and that is that Dante did know that Venedico wasn't dead at the setting of the poem, wasn't dead in 1300, but Dante didn't care. In other words, Dante is saying... It's my poem. I can do what I want. He's getting braver. He's putting figures down here who aren't yet dead. But hey, it's my poem. I get to do what I want to with them. I kind of like that because there's a boldness attached to it, a boldness attached to the writing stance of it. But it might be too far of a leap. And probably the easiest answer is given poor communication in the Middle Ages, Dante just didn't know the exact year that Venedico died. The text goes on to say, how come you're down in this rank braise? Uh, it's how I translate it is rank braise. It's often translated as pungent or piquant sauce. And there is a food metaphor here that's going on, but there's something else as well. And let me point you to one of the commentaries just to explain this to you. I'm reading you a passage from Benvenuto's old commentary on Inferno. It's a commentary in Latin. I'm not going to read it to you in Latin. I'm going to read you a translation of it. Benvenuto knew Bologna, knew Dante's world, maybe closer to it than we, well, certainly closer to it than we are. So let me just say what Benvenuto says about this pungent sauce, or as I translated it, rank braise. So that you may understand this word and at the same time see how many things are hidden and unknown in this book, he means Inferno, I want you to know that salsa, that's the word used there, that I translated braise, that's often translated sauce, salsa, is a certain sloping concave place outside Bologna, just, pla just past Santa Maria in Monte. The bodies of desperate criminals, usurers, and other unspeakable persons used to be thrown here. I have heard boys in Bologna say to each other as an insult, your father was thrown to salsa. Thus, what the author means to say is, what has brought you to a valley as infamous as the Valley of Salsa in your homeland? In this passage, therefore, you must not interpret salsa for having anything to do, salsa, the word in the Florentine, as having anything to do with taste as is commonly done, for it is self-evident that such an interpretation would not correspond to the author's intention. Okay, we can take Benvenuto's point, and it's an interesting historical aside that this pungent sauce, rank salsa, this, this stinky salsa, is a reference to this place where criminals were thrown outside of Bologna, but there is too much about eating in the passage. What did Dante say the first moment he sets eyes on this guy? I certainly haven't been fasting for the sight of this guy. Eating and eating metaphors are going to predominate throughout the eighth circle. So I would say that Benvenuto's point is well taken as a historical point, and yet at the same time, there may be a secondary meaning here, which is reflected in my translation, rank braise, or in the way that many people translate it, pungent sauce, because it's so gross to think about the damned as kind of braised alive, and therefore some horrible perversion of food itself. That's so gross. Let's just pass on. Venedico says, I don't want to say anything. See, there's that thing. I'm looking down. I don't want you to know me. I don't want you to know anything about me. But your plain speech 
forces me to do so. Interesting that he says plain speech when in fact Dante, what the pilgrim says to him is rather insulting. Rank praise, pungent sauce, whatever it is. You know, you with your eyes on the ground don't think you can escape my who I, what I'm going to say. So it's interesting that he says plain speech forces me to do so, that he focuses in on the, well, shall we say, the simplicity of what is said, not the tonality of what he said. That's an interesting point to make here in a passage that is going to end so vulgarly at its conclusion. Your plain speech forces me to do so because it forces me to remember the old lost world. That's such gorgeous weirdness there, such nostalgia, the old lost world. It forces me to remember all of that that was up there. And it carries this kind of emotional uh, import behind it, nostalgia, the lost world, the things that I've lost. Your speech forces me to remember it. And we would have to say that this guy's Bolognese and Dante's Florentine. They're not speaking the same dialect. Well, they are in Inferno. Of course they are in Inferno. But in in if we were actually watching the scene, they wouldn't be speaking the same dialect. Though, so there is something about the how do we say that the 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 words used and the way they're used that forces the sinner to speak. It forces me to remember not just to speak, but to remember the old lost world. I was the guy who made Gisolabelle submit to the will of the Marquis. Okay. Here's the sin, and here's what he confesses to. Gisolabella is probably his sister. The reason I say probably is because this account is actually lost to the historical record. All we have to go on here are the commentaries, and the commentariat from the mm, late 1300s, 1400s, and on, which all seem to bind up this notion that Kisolabella is his sister and that he sells her to the Marquis. Who is the Marquis? Well, that's a subject of a lot of controversy inside the commentary. It could be Azzo VIII of Este, or it could be Obizzo II of Este, the powerful dukes of Este. It could be either of them. We've already met. Obizzo II of Este, back amongst the violent against their neighbors in Canto 12, line 111. There's Obizzo up to his waist, I think, right? Isn't he about up to his waist, I think? Or maybe it's his neck, in the boiling river of blood. And we had a reference to Azzo VIII because Azzo VIII is basically his illegitimate son who killed him, Obizo II, in order to take over. In that passage, it basically states that, you know, here's Obizo II, whose, whose bastard son killed him. And thus, here he is. So they're both referenced there. We've seen them already back amongst the circle of the violent. That's probably who's being spoken of here. But the commentary goes back and forth about which one and in fact, I just want to reiterate, this entire episode has been lost to the historical record. Why do I want to restate that? Because it's important to see the distance between us and Inferno sometimes. we I'm always trying to, we, I, I, <laughs> I'll own it. I'm always trying to bring Inferno up into our lives. 
sometimes it's very important to remember that there are scrims and scrims and scrims and layers and layers and layers between us and this poem of history of historical progress. We don't have anything in Dante's own hand. We have manuscripts, as we've already discussed, that have been copied by others. It's important sometimes to realize how shadowy some of this is behind us. And while this seems like a really important and big episode, I mean, this guy gets a lot of lines. This guy gets 12 lines in Inferno, which is a fairly big speech. I mean, it's no Ferenata and it's no Francesca, but it's still a pretty big speech in the course of Inferno, 12 lines. So it seems important, and yet we're kind of lost to history here, and we have to rely on the commentary to give us the context for what's actually going on here. But Venedico definitely wants to correct the record and say, basically, I sold my sister out. Basically, I pimped her. I, I pimped her to the Marquis and sold her for a better coin, which is how the passage ends. So let's pass on and get toward it. I'm not the only Bolognese or Bolognese wailing here. This place is crammed so full of us that not so many tongues have learned how to say Sipa between Savena and Reno. What's he saying here? He's admitting to being Bolognese. So that's the first thing. And we should know that as we go down the evil pouches, we're going to kind of get a tour of the cities, particularly of central Italy. And this is our first one. So this first pouch, which has pimps walking in one direction, this first pouch, and why pimps are in fraud, we'll talk about in a minute. This first patch has Bolognese people in it, apparently a lot of them. And Sipa, which he says, learn to say Sipa. Sipa is an old Bolognese word for Sia, or in modern Italian, Si, yes. He's saying that there's not as many have learned to speak our dialect between Savena and Reno. In other words, the bulk of us are here. Savena and Reno are the two rivers that kind of form the edge of the Bolognese territory. This place is just jammed with us of people who speak my dialect. And it's interesting that he brings up the dialectic word, especially since he said your plain speech earlier. It's interesting that here we get a little, one word, of Bolognese speech. And that's an interesting problem that is setting up in Dantean fashion a seed of something that's going to bloom down the road in the evil pouches. The first time we see a kind of dialectical Italian here that is being called out for its regional differences. Believe me, this will pay off. So let's go on out and look at the rest of the passage. If you need any confirmation or truthfulness of all of this, just remember our money-grubbing ways. The Bolognese were stereotyped, were uh, put down by many other cities and citizens of central Italy for being notoriously avaricious. And here, again, we come back to this notion that fraud is never far from money. That is what he did. He sold his sister for money. He sold her out to the Marquis and... At least the commentators claim that the Marquis used her and then abandoned her and left her a fallen woman. So we get the kind of coda on the passage. As he was speaking, a demon struck him. Remember, we got these horned demons in this pit with their horse whips and said, get on pimp, thereby naming the sin, pimp. And then this ultimately vulgar line, there's no twat 
for you to mint into coin here. The word used that I have translated as twat is probably more vulgar than that. There is another word in English I could have used. I considered using it because it's probably closer to what the intent is here, but I decided I couldn't go quite that far. But it is extremely vulgar. And the mint into coin here is my kind of pulling out of a very compact phrase in the Florentine. But the notion is that you're turning women into money. In other words, this is the first metamorphosis of the eighth circle. Being a pimp is creating the metamorphosis of a woman's body into coin. This is our first hint of the Ovidian, Ovid, the metamorphoses, of the Ovidian overlay of the eighth circle. But it's been here all along. Go back up in the passage. Remember what the pilgrim says? Assuming your features haven't been falsified in some way. There's another drop tint of a metamorphosis. And in fact, it's been here from the very top. As I was going along, my eyes happened upon one of the sinners. And all at once I said, I certainly haven't been fasting for the sight of that guy. Bringing up an eating metaphor. Eating metaphors are going to dominate the eighth canto. And I'm about to get gross. Just forgive me. To eat is to defecate, which is a metamorphosis, which is the very essence of fraud itself. That is to turn something good into something foul. We're going to discover that that eating metaphor is so important to fraud because it is turning something delicious, good, fabulous, I don't know, you know, a nice beef stew. It's turning it into defecation. It is the metamorphosis that happens that is exactly like fraud, to take the good of this world and turn it into something foul, usually for monetary gain. I got a couple more things to say, and these are speculative questions about this episode. First, this episode no matter how you slice it, for me, is unsatisfactory. It's not one of the high points of comedy. It's, it's first of all, partly because of the historical model that's going on underneath it, but just the whole episode itself, it seems like it's just driving toward that punchline from the demon. And so because of that, the episode doesn't feel like it's fully realized, and I don't think it is fully realized. And I think there are a couple reasons for that. I mean, this guy's given a lot of space, 12 lines to talk, and he's given a lot of weight. I mean, Pilgrim backs up to see him. A lot of weight in comedy, and yet the episode itself, oh, it pales in comparison to Pierre Nelavegno or Farinata or Francesca. It just pales in comparison to those episodes. So, why is it vaguely unsatisfying? I think there are a couple reasons here. Dante has to figure out how to write about those who own up to their sins and who are not trying to justify themselves or divert attention away from their misdeeds. Francesca, Ferranata, Brunetto, Latini, they are all trying to justify themselves or at least divert the attention away from what they've done wrong. Once we go over the cliff with Garion, we hit a group of people who don't 
want to necessarily justify what they did. In fact, they're just going to say it straight out. And when we get on down in hell, this is going to become more comfortable for, I think, Dante the poet. But right now, at the first encounter with one of these guys that is not going to try to divert you away, but just say, this is who I am. This is what I did. It's not good. And I don't want you to pay any attention to me. It's so bad. This is the first encounter, and I think our poet still has to kind of get his sea legs about how to do this, because this is a change from those great figures back earlier in hell, up in the sins of incontinence and the heretics and the violent, in which the characters are trying to justify themselves. Think of Jacopo Rustacucci. Think about all the self-justification that's going on here. Look at this with Venedico. There's no self-justification. In fact, there's just a further condemnation. that This is what happened. No matter, as he says, how the filthy story gets told. Doesn't matter how, what you've heard about it. This is the truth. I, I pimped out my sister to the Marquis. So Dante's got to still figure out how to write this. Remember, poem in process, not poem as product. So I think that's part of the uh, unsatisfactory nature of this but also there is that verisimilitude problem. I mean, listen, they could never have this conversation as they pass each other. If you're going to have people circling in the ditch, even if I'm backing up to talk to you as you're walking toward me, I, I, I would just have to keep backing up and backing up and back. I think how long I'd have to back up to have this conversation with you, to, to have this long 12 lines for you to speak to me and me to speak back to you. And yeah, well, good grief. There's a problem here, and that is the verisimilitude problem. And I think the poet knows it and he's trying to solve it by backing up a little bit, but it still doesn't really ring true. And again, the poet is going to have to figure out how to get these evil pouches connected to the pilgrim more effectively. And he is basically Virgil and the Pilgrim are going to descend into the bottom of some of these pouches, or they're going to have conversations over the sinners in the pouches that are much more evocative and they're not going to be in this constant motion. So all that's got to get figured out and it's got to get figured out because the, the incidents can't sit like this, which sit kind of up on a surface level and don't actually plumb the depths of human emotions. And instead, this, this strikes me as this episode is set up just to get to a punchline from a demon, a joke that I'm supposed to laugh at, but also be horrified at. It's unsatisfactory. But trust me, our poet is the greatest there is. He will learn his way out of this difficulty way better than I ever could. Okay, so one more thing. Let's go back to John Nornberg's point about who's walking where. And if, in fact, Dante is speaking over the heads of those who are walking along beside him in the trench because they have to take longer strides because the side closest to him would be wider, the circumference of the circle would be wider than the side away from him. And so Vinodico now is over there and he's talking over the heads of the guys he's walking along beside. Maybe. I've thought about this a lot since I recorded the last episode. And while I like Nornberg's thesis, because I like it to kind of kick 700 years of commentary, I'll admit I'm an iconoclast. I like that. And I like somebody that's challenging it. I'm not quite sure of it. And the more I think about it, the more unsure I become of it. And here's why. It's not that I care which side the pimps are on and which side we'll soon meet them. The other guys in this pit are on. It's not that I, I so much care about that. It's that I wonder whether we can rank 
the sins of fraud in the way we have been ranking sins. We have been ranking sins as getting worse and worse, right? Lust, gluttony, avarice, anger. We've been ranking the sins down. They've been getting worse. Violence against your neighbor, violence against yourself, violence against God. There's an implicit ranking there, especially in medieval theology. But once we hit the Malabolgia, the evil pouches, I'm not sure we can say that the sins go down in the order of severity. I realize all of the commentary makes that claim that the sins go down in the order of severity. But I think there may be other structuring devices here. Here's why, and I'm going to tell you a bit of the plot before. If the sins go down in the order of severity, I'm going to have to reach a point in which I'm going to claim that counterfeiting is the worst sin. Counterfeiting money is just the worst. It's it's as bad as it could possibly get. The worst sin before we finally hit Satan. That makes no sense. That absolutely makes no sense. You can't say that counterfeiting money is worse than murdering people who are the sins of violence out there. I mean, I'm sorry, it's just not going to work out on a human level. It may be that the sins of the Malabolja are connected to each other and are put together in alternate ways besides increasing severity. And because of that, and I want to talk this out more in future episodes of the podcast, because of that, it may not matter which side of the ditch who is on. I realize saying that I am bucking 700 years. See, there's that iconoclast. I'm bucking 700 years. But there are ways in which these sins, as I've already told you, are going to start to alternate. Um, We're going to have Ovidian, to put it bluntly, Ovidian sins and Virgilian sins. Or we're going to have sins that treat money one way and treat money another way. And they're going to keep alternating back and forth between them. And it may be that the pockets, the evil pouches of this eighth circle are not ranked based on severity, but have a more literary sort of ranking about them. And a different kind of structural format rather than just increasing severity. And so in the end, maybe Nornberg's point doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter who's walking which way, but for sure we've seen the pimps. And up next, we're going to see their counterparts in this ditch walking the other way, whether they're walking closer or farther from the pilgrim. We're going to start to see the other guys going in the other direction in this ditch. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it, rank it. (laughs) Don't rank it in severity. Rank it for other reasons. Rank it on the Apple Analytics and Google Analytics. That helps a great deal. I know you can't rank it on Spotify, but still nonetheless, you can connect with me on my website, markscarborough.com, or you can find me on Facebook or Twitter. There's that Walking with Dante group on Facebook. Uh, It's very easy to find me on Twitter, too. If you hashtag it, Walking with Dante, I'll find you. You can find me, and then we can talk to each other and more about this episode. Long podcast episode. Sorry broke my own rules about not wanting to be too long but this just i couldn't figure out where to break this passage it was just too much all of a thing itself next time shorter promise that i'm mark scarborough i'll see you then